Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Pitts. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about the acid doctor. And I'll be talking about the Snyder family, Ha Ha Tonka, and the lake of the Ozarks. Oh my god. Okay. Everyone in the Midwest is excited for yours. <laughs> Holy crap. Ha Ha Tonka. That's the... Uh, the uh, Crazy yes, Castle. Yes, yes. Yes. Wait, is the Snyder family the one that like had it built for them? That's correct. Oh my god. Oh my god. That's correct. Okay. So... I was going to do a different case this week. I actually researched a different case and had a really gruesome murder in it. And I was like, I don't want to fucking talk about that. <laughs> and so then I was like, let me find something more lighthearted. So this is lighthearted. Uh-huh. Um, it's old timey. Uh-huh. It has local connections and it's got a familiar player. So um, I'm so pumped. <laughs> I do have to say, though, it feels like we have reversed because... Man, if you want some gore, if you want something yes, gruesome, your cases stick around for mine. Oh my God. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, I'm glad I didn't do mine then, because like God, it would have been awful. I, I'm still gonna do it because I did a bunch of research into yeah. it, but I was like, oh, I don't feel like talking about this right now. Um, okay. Real quick before I jump in here. Um, also, this is unlike any case I've ever covered before, and people are gonna be like, Why the fuck did you pick this case? Like, this is not a brandy case, but. It's a fun, it's a fun change pace. Hey, you know what? Maybe people were like, "Oh my god, it's more of a Kristen case." This yeah. is so nice. Probably we love Kristen. We love cases. Kristen. <laughs> Hashtag Team Kristen. Um, okay, on a serious note, real quick, yeah. the episode where I tell people what has been going on in my life mm-hmm. just came out like hours ago. At yeah. this point that we're recording, and the support that people are giving me and us as a podcast has been un believable and amazing and thank you everybody for your tweets and your messages and your kind words it like seriously just gives us life thank you you deserve it thank you i mean seriously like i knew i knew our listeners would be really supportive and would want to reach out to you and they have you know it's like so we appreciate that because i think you know, you've been through some shit and Yes. <laughs> In <laughs> fact I have. <laughs> One day you'll write a tell all book, but for now it's nice to see some kind tweets. That's right. It's been really, really awesome. So thank you, thank you, everybody. All right. Let's talk about a story that's got some Kansas City connections. Mm-hmm. It's old timey. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned, someone we know and love will make an appearance. James A. Reed. Spoiler alert. Oh. <laughs> it had to be James A. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Robert Snyder had his hands in all kinds of business. Born in Indiana in 1852, 
He was subjected to pressure to follow in the footsteps of his family and become a fourth generation miller. But at 21, Robert began working as a bookkeeper instead. In 1875, he married and moved to St. Louis, where he worked as a merchandise broker, whatever the fuck that is. Mm -hmm. And in 1876, the Snyders welcomed their first child, a boy they named Robert Jr., And things were good for the young family until the following year when Robert's wife died of what I don't know, but it was 1877. So she probably died of like a fucking splinter or some shit. She died of 1800s. In 1879, Snyder remarried and moved to Kansas. He and his wife welcomed three more sons and Robert started a wholesale grocery business. By 1882, Robert's business interests were branching out. He tried his hands at banking and real estate in Kansas City, and he was a success. In 1890, he started the Mechanics Bank and then later the Banker's Life Insurance Company. From there, he went on to serve as the president of the National Bank of Commerce, as secretary treasurer of the Kansas City Cattle Company, as vice president of the Detroit and Lima Railway Company, Whoa. and as director of the Bond Shoe Company. Jeez! So when I say he had his hands in all kinds of business, he truly did. That's crazy. It's crazy, yes. And that wasn't the end of it. In 1894, he started the Missouri Gas Company. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. Which secured a contract with the city to supply natural gas to customers in Kansas City at a rate 60% lower than the competition. Well, wow. Yeah. So Robert had this great plan to drill for natural gas in southern Kansas, where it would be cheaper, and then pipe it back to the city. And so... This is crazy. When he was drilling for natural gas, uh-huh. he struck oil. What? Yes. <laughs> and the well produced 500 barrels of oil a day. Okay, this is like, do you know the story of how they made Viagra? No. They were trying to make like heart medicine or something. Oh! And they ended up <laughs> and accidentally like, oh my making God, everybody's got raging boners. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they wanted gas and yes, instead they got oil. oil. That's yes. amazing. Yeah. So, if all of those business ventures hadn't been paying off for dear old Robert, the Snyders were certainly set now. No kidding. But in 1896, tragedy struck Robert again when his second wife died. A bigger splinter. Oh, yeah, giant splinter. So now... Robert was rich, and that was great and everything, but he also had four sons. Um, Asterisk next to four sons, because this is old-timey, so it's hard, like, conflicting information is in different articles. He may have had three sons, may have had four. I don't understand why didn't you get an exact number. (laughs) It's really difficult to find this information. I feel like I'm Um, talking to myself right right now. Exactly. (laughs) So he had some sons he needed to take care of, and he was on his own. He managed for a while, and I'm sure he had all the help that Uh, money could buy. Yeah. But at the turn of the century, like the literal turn of the century, Uh January 1st, 1900, he remarried to his third wife, 
um, a woman from Boston named Sybil McKenzie. Hmm. By this time, Robert was 47. Oh, no. And Sybil... 20. Was 18. (gasps) Ew! (laughs) She was... Five years younger than his oldest son. No. Yeah. That is gross. Yeah, it's pretty gross. Ugh. Yeah. The Snyder family was once again doing super great. Robert, his sons, his child bride, they were just (laughs) killing it in Kansas City in the 1900s. They were super involved in the Independence Boulevard Christian Church, and they made contributions to many other churches in Kansas City. But, as it turned out, not everything in the Snyder family was quite on the up and up. Really? You don't say. (laughs) As I mentioned, Robert Snyder had moved to Kansas City from St. Louis. But after that move, he had continued to do some sneaky business in St. Louis. One of those business dealings included a bribe of $250,000. <gasps> How much in today's Adjusted dollars? Adjusted for inflation. Uh-huh. It's just over $7.6 million. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So that bribe went to members of the St. Louis Municipal Assembly to secure a contract that would allow him to run rail tracks through St. Louis pretty much anywhere he wanted to. And the streetcar business was booming at this time. Yeah. So it was a super lucrative position that Robert Snyder found himself in after securing that contract. Well, he didn't find himself in it. He bribed (laughs) his way into it, but okay. So... What did Robert do with that contract? Why, he turned around and sold it to United Railways, a streetcar company, for $1,250,000. Good grief. Which, adjusted for inflation? $11 billion. $38 million. Oh, my God. Oh. Yeah. What do you even do with all that money? Right? So... What I don't know is exactly how word of this bribe got out. Mm -hmm. My guess is probably that United Railways figured out that they had overpaid for this contract by Uh a million dollars and got pissed. And that's how it got out. But that's just a guess. But somehow people found out about this bribe. And on April 5th, 1902, Robert Snyder was indicted for bribery. Wow. Yeah. His trial for bribery charges began in September of 1902, and his defense was simple. He didn't necessarily deny the bribes. He simply argued that the statute of limitations had run out on them. Oh, I hate that. (laughs) I hate that. The statute of limitations for bribery at this time was three years, Uh and these bribes had taken place in 1898, almost four. Four years ago. Well, shit. I mean, he's right. Case closed. Thank you. Goodbye. Have a great day. See you never. But of course, the prosecution was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's pump the brakes there, buddy. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, technically, four years have passed. But uh, hey there, judge, hear us out on this. We believe we are still within the statute because Mr. Snyder travels out of the state quite frequently. 
So really, anytime he's out of the state for an extended amount of time, like all of those times he set up residence at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City, the statute should be paused because it's not like we could prosecute him at that time. Okay, I'm I'm on their side, but that is just ridiculous. <laughs> I like so every time that he is staying somewhere long enough that he's establishing it as a residence, uh-huh. that should pause the statute, puts a hold on it. So now it's been extended and we are well within it, Judge. See, I would almost think a better argument. I don't know that it's a better legal argument, but what about like, shouldn't the statute of limitations not start when the crime occurs? But it's maybe when, you, when it's known. When it's known, yeah. And I think that's how it works now. Okay, <laughs> but I don't think it is because like all these, on certain crimes, it is all these sex crimes. It's like people come forward as adults and everything. Yeah. Like, yeah. But because that's what they they say, like, if you told anybody at that time that started the statute, I like, have you I, watched the keepers? They talk about yes, this in the keepers. And the keepers was yeah. amazing, but it I mean, made me want to rip my hair out. Horrifying. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, It's on uh, Netflix. If you haven't seen it, folks, definitely check it out. It's horrifying, but really well done. Yeah. So the prosecution lays out this, their, their argument to the judge and the judge is like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. I see what you're saying. Mm -hmm. All right. I'll agree that we're within the statute. Okay. Yeah. So the trial moved forward and Robert Snyder was convicted and sentenced to five years in prison. Wow. Yeah. He didn't serve time. He he um, immediately appealed his conviction uh-huh. all the way to the Missouri Supreme Court. And while his appeal was working its way through the legal system, he was released on bail. Mm-hmm. It was while he was out on bail that Robert first visited Haha Tonka. So Haha Tonka Lake was a two acre lake near Camden, Missouri. Filled with trout, it had a small dam, um, and the water flowed into the Niangua River. Really beautiful piece of mm-hmm. property. Above the lake was this large cliff, and on that cliff, Robert Snyder envisioned making his estate. Yeah, it had breathtaking views, lots of mature trees. It was exactly what he envisioned for setting up what would become his family's legacy. Yeah. And so he bought the property in 1905 and set about building a $40,000 mansion, which adjusted for inflation (laughs) is about um, $1.1 million. Okay. That's not as impressive as I thought it would be. No. Um, That's just for the mansion. Yeah. And it's definitely added on as they, as they went. Um, Hold on. Yes. Have we been there together? I don't know. It's funny. Like, we went kind of everywhere yeah. as a kid. And I know I've been to Ha Tonka. Yeah. Like, I don't a think, million times, I don't I don't think, think we've, we've been, been together. There, yeah. Uh-uh. Huh, okay. Yeah. Um, so this property would become would come to be known as Ha Ha Tonka Castle. 
Snyder had very specific ideas about how he wanted this mansion to look. His dream was to build a structure reminiscent of a European castle in the Ozark Mountains. Mm -hmm. So he enlisted Kansas City architect Adrian's Van Brunt to design the mansion. And he brought in stonemasons from Scotland to ensure the authenticity of the work. Oh, my God. A quarry was set up on the property. And stones were hauled up to the bluff, first by mules and later by cable-drawn railroad cars. grief. By the end of 1905, there were more than 200 men working on the mansion. They were also creating stables and a water tower. Mm-hmm. It was a huge undertaking. Yeah. When the Snyders themselves wanted to visit the property to check on the progress, they had to take like a night train from Kansas City to Springfield, change lines there, and then take another train to Lebanon, Missouri. And then there in Lebanon, Robert Snyder had his own horses and carriage stowed. And so they would get off the train, get in the carriage, and take the carriage the rest of the way to the property. That sounds like a pain in the ass. It sounds like a giant pain in the ass. Uh, okay. But this is exactly what he wanted. This is what he'd always envisioned, a place where his family could enjoy summers and holidays mm-hmm. and overlook the beauty of this pond. They could hunt. They could fish. They could enjoy nature. Mm-hmm. So here's a side note that doesn't necessarily fit in here, but doesn't really fit in anywhere, and I really wanted to put it in here. Okay. So I read one place that said that there was an Indian burial ground on the bluff, mm-hmm. and that during construction of the mansion, they had to, they unearthed many skeletons that they oh, had no. to relocate. Yes. Hmm. It's bad juju. Uh-huh. It's not great. It's not great. Haha Tonka is an Osage Indian phrase and it means like laughing waters or something like that Uh so progress continued on the mansion but as it always seemed to follow them tragedy struck the snyder family again in 1906 in january of that year carrie snyder one of robert's sons was found murdered in oregon (gasps) oh he had been kind of a stain on the family name because um, he was convicted of robbing a Kansas City pawn shop of what? more than $5,000 in jewelry a couple years earlier. Why? Would it, why? Right? Why? Oh, why? That's, that's just a personality Oh, defect, yeah. Because you know he didn't need the money. Exactly. So his murder was believed to be linked to a bank robbery that he was involved in with a gang of crooks in Oregon. Good grief. Yeah. Yeah. So by this time, the Missouri Supreme Court had decided to overturn Robert's conviction And they ordered him a new trial. They said that the lower court had erred in instructing the jury about the statute of limitations and that like the judge had told them they'd made an exception in the case and Mm -hmm. that should not have been told to the jury. And well, so so are they saying so they're just saying that the court erred. They're not saying statute of limitations was up there. Correct. They're just saying the court erred. Okay. Yeah. Such a long, drawn-out process. Oh, yeah. Um, They also said that the prosecution had biased the jury by stating in their closing argument 
that Robert Snyder choosing not to testify at his trial clearly meant he did not deny the accusations uh, against yeah, him. Yeah, you can't say yeah, that. You can't say that. Man, prosecutors <laughs> made that mistake back in the day, yes, and they, they still, still make, make that it. mistake. They do. You're yeah. allowed not to fuck yourself over That's in court. Correct. So Snyder's second trial was um, scheduled to begin in September of 1906. But it was delayed when the councilman who had received the bribe failed to show up at trial to testify. Oopsies. Yes. And so the second trial was delayed and ultimately it would never take place. Because on October 27th, 1906, tragedy struck the Snyder family once again. Robert Snyder died in an unusual accident. I know this. You do? Yes. It was 6.30 p.m. on Saturday evening, and Robert was being driven home by his chauffeur. The car was speeding along down the street at a top speed of 10 miles an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Can people even think that fast? (laughs) When suddenly a little boy, um, either there's conflicting information on this, either riding a bike or pulling a wagon, um, one or the other, suddenly like came out into the street mm-hmm. and so the chauffeur had to swerve the car suddenly at the last second to miss him uh-huh. well this is like um it's like an old like model a car well yeah and so it's, like, it's, it's 1906 you yeah said? Okay, it's 1906 yeah. so it's like an open body so uh-huh. um when he swerves robert snyder's thrown out of the car yeah and he hits his head on an iron trolley post oh and cracks his skull open oh God. and dies. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay, I knew he died in a car accident. I didn't know he died yeah. that way. That's it is terrible. one of the first, if not the first, uh-huh. traffic accident fatality in Kansas City. See, I thought it was the first in America. Is that... I? I so... One article says it's the first in Kansas City. Okay. One of it says one of the first in America. So okay, yeah. Something. Yes. It was, okay. I mean, not very many people had cars yet. So I would believe that it is the first. Well, you do think about like, that's a huge, it's a huge shift because then all of a sudden kids can't go running around wherever yeah. they want. People can't just walk wherever they want. Because exactly. Because cars coming at them eight Hurling miles at an them hour. Eight miles an hour. <laughs> Um, the little boy also died in the oh. accident. Yeah. Super sad. Poor little guy. Robert Snyder was 54 years old mm-hmm. at the time of his death. So the task of finishing the mansion was left up to Snyder's sons. And immediately they had the roof finished so that the mansion would be protected um, from the elements. Uh-huh. And then work on the mansion came to a complete standstill. Like by 1907, no more work was being completed on it at all. The boys couldn't decide what to do. And it just became a bigger task than they were willing to deal with. And the mansion stood there unfinished for the next, like, 13 years. What about the child bride? Did she not get any of, like, the, the money? Or was did it all... I'm sure she got some of the money, yeah. But it all really came down to the sons. Yeah, they were left in charge of the project. Okay, and the three of them were like... Or four. This. All three, or three or four, however many there might have been. The less well, one died, five. so... Okay, yeah. Who knows how many there were. At some point, they actually attempted to sell the property back to the state 
at the <gasps> park. Uh-huh. And they're like, yeah, we don't really want this anymore. Can you guys take it back? And the state was like, uh, no thanks. Like, there's a half-completed mansion on it. Yeah. That's not like a real great park. <laughs> That is so. We heard you really upset that Indian burial ground. So that is so like arrogant. To oh, it like, totally is. Like, well, we kind of fucked this up, but uh, it's our gift to you now. Yeah, Here, exactly. Have this trash. Yeah. So finally, in the 1920s, the sons decided that they would finish the property, and the 60 room mansion is was completed in 1922. Robert Jr. lived in the home after its completion, and the rest of the family stayed there often often for summers and holidays. Mm -hmm. But all of that would change in 1929 with the creation of the Lake of the Ozarks. Oh! So, in 1929, actually, like, in the 1920s, these, these laws started getting passed in the United States that would allow electric companies to start forming like hydroelectric plants Mm -hmm. and so union electric decided that it was going to create the lake of the ozarks which is a man-made lake that you and i have been to many times many times it's a very popular uh it doesn't sound classy and it's not it's not (laughs) it's not it's all we got perhaps you've seen the netflix show (laughs) ozark (laughs) which is set at the lake of the ozarks and pretty accurate (laughs) (laughs) there are nice areas there's uh, very expensive homes on parts of the lake yeah but it is, it's a man-made lake, and it was created by creating the Bagnell Dam, which is a hydroelectric plant. So in 1929, 1930, Union Electric started buying up properties where the lake would be, because mm-hmm. it was going to flood this entire area. Right. And most of the people that lived there were very poor and had didn't have the ability to fight Union Electric, and so they mm. just took the money and they left. Yeah. So initially, Union Electric was going to flood um, just a just a portion of the Snyder's property. So their property is like separated up into like different tracts of land, uh-huh. and so it was determined that like four of them would be flooded, and so they were offered one hundred and forty three thousand dollars for that portion of their land which, which i'm sure was a bu- much better rate than what the poor people oh got. i'm sure it was which I, I didn't adjust that for inflation let me do what that real hell, quick brandy 2.5 million right almost Ooh, yeah 2.2 <sighs> <sighs> did mm. you just pull that number out of your butt don't worry about where i pulled it out <laughs> of So they initially took that money, Uh and then the project went on, Uh the lake was created, and all of a sudden, it was very different than what Union Electric had promised them. Because the way that damming the river worked in the creation of the lake, the lake waters would ebb and flow, so it'd be higher at different times, lower at different times. When the water was lower, it would create these large areas of, like... um, A mud pit? Of mud, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, that completely detracted from the beauty of their property. Uh Uh-huh. And it also swamped their trout lake. Oh. Yeah, it created just, like, muddy conditions. It totally, like... Flushed out all the trout, like made it 
unfishable, unswimmable. They also had like a beach walk into that their little trout lake and it totally flooded that out, marshed it all up. So they it, it created serious problems that they weren't aware were going to happen. Right, right. And so they were like, no, fuck this. Like, you need to give us more money. And Union right. Electric was like, no, you agreed to 143000 And so mm-hmm. the Snyders looked at them and they said, let's go to court. I'm so excited. I don't know any about, like, <laughs> the only thing I knew about this story was, like, I can picture Haha Tonka yeah. Mansion in my head. Yeah. And I knew that, like, well... I knew an exaggerated fact that he was, like, the first guy to ever die in a and car. And maybe he was. Let's say he was. He, I think he was. Oh. At the very least, I think for sure he was the first person to die in a car accident in Kansas City. Well, that's a lot lamer, Brandy. It's not. The first person in America versus the first person in Kansas City? Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and really, it was him exiting the car that caused the death. Okay, you can't call that an exit. <laughs> I guess that's true. That is like <laughs> that is terrible. <laughs> All right, forget I said that. <laughs> I'm ask the jury to strike that from the record, please. The Snyders take Union Electric to court, mm-hmm. civil court, and they sued them for $1.3 million Ooh, in damages. Wow. Okay. Which adjusted for inflation. Mm-hmm. Also did not calculate what this. What the hell? Which, psh. I did the early ones, and then I guess I was like, nah, who cares? <laughs> $19 million. Whoa. Yeah. $19 million in today's money. <sighs> These people are obnoxious. Yeah. So um, both sides got a crazy amount of representation. Uh, sure. Representing the Snyders oh. was our friend. You know him. You love him. You've heard of his road. None Jane. other oh. than James <laughs> A. Reed. Sorry, I messed that <laughs> no, up. That was totally fine. It's totally fine. So I read this, um, and I... I I don't think we've talked about this before, Uh um, but I read this when I was researching this, that he, when he was a prosecutor, he prosecuted something like 287 cases. Okay. And he won 285. Whoa. That is nuts. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Dude was good. Yes. So now he was not married to Nellie Dawn at this time, right? Mm, This is too early. Too early, I think. Yeah. 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 Well, it's 1930. When did he marry her? Oh, shit. Oh, hang on. Yeah. Hang on. I'm, I'm moving my stuff. This, I think that would have been right around the kidnapping. Yeah, I think it is. Okay, hold on. Uh, she had his child in 1931. Okay, so this trial started November 30th, 1931. Oh, my God. Okay, so he's got this secret. Yes. <laughs> okay, um... Yeah, and then 1932, Nell divorced her shitty husband. Uh-huh, and Laura remarried. died. Yeah, and then remarried. Okay, hang on. When did the kidnapping happen? Okay. Her abduction took place December 16th, 1931. Holy shit! And when did you say this? November 30th, 1931! Oh, too much was happening. Whoa! Wait, wait. I didn't make that connection. Remember he has to leave a yes. trial 
it's not this one. Oh my god, it's not oh, this one. I was so excited because like it, it all clicked. This like, trial only takes seventeen days. Oh my god. Yeah, all I could remember was like, oh my god, he was away on business yes. for another trial. He had to come back. Oh, oh my so, god. He was away on business though because this trial took place in Jefferson City. Okay, so yeah, he yeah. did have to go. Yeah. to Jefferson City, but this is not the trial he had to recuse oh himself from. I, that's nuts I didn't even put together that it was at the same time the passion is real my heart was pounding oh my god okay we love our old timey Kansas City figures here on this podcast (laughs) so he comes in and of course gives like I don't know like a six hour opening oh yeah argument Uh and he's got a whole a presentation about the beauty of Ha Ha Tonka he's Got a, a scale model out of plaster of Paris made of it uh-huh. so that the jury can see it. It's crazy. The trial itself, super fucking boring. Okay, yeah. They talk about engineering and blah, 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 blah land yeah. values and bore snooze fest. Um, but <laughs> no blood in sight. No, no, there's no blood at all. But um, he brings in a couple of really interesting witnesses. Okay. So uh, one of them... Their star witness was what? Gutzen Borglum. Oh my! Uh huh. It's a it's a mouthful of a name, mm-hmm. but it might sound familiar to you. It doesn't. It didn't sound familiar to me either. But he's a very well known person. Really? He actually had to take leave from his job at that time to come testify at this trial because he is the creator. Of Mount Rushmore. What? <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Yes. Whoa. Yes. He Whoa. designed Mount Rushmore and he was overseeing its completion at the time of this trial. He had to leave South Dakota and come to Missouri to testify. That is so cool. Yes. Okay. okay. Oh my God. Continue. So he testifies that Ha Ha Tonka is one of the most beautiful places he's ever seen in the entire world. Okay. Oh, cool it, buddy. Right? (laughs) I mean, come on, I'm not wrong, right? And he said that prior to the Lake of the Ozarks Uh um, flooding out the area, that he would have valued the property at $1.5 million. But now, with all of that flooding and all of that mud and everything, $165,000 probably. Okay, this is, that's ridiculous. And so he valued every tree on the property at like $100 a piece. What? And Union Electric cut down like 6,000 trees Uh in preparing the area Uh to be able to be flooded for the creation of the lake. Uh So clearly... Clearly, they uh, they owed them that, you know, that's a, clearly $1.3 million in damages. Okay, what was he getting from this? this is I, I don't know. He truly he truly believed it was the most beautiful place on no, earth, No, he Kristen. didn't. No, he didn't. Kristen, Where had he you traveled? have been there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, granted, I wasn't there before the Lake of the Ozarks Correct. came along. But yes. I mean, okay, I, I know I'm going to offend some people with this. But I'm going to start it by saying I was born in Missouri. Yes. I live in Missouri. Yes. And I am going to tell you right now, unequivocally, the most beautiful place on earth is not and has never been in Missouri. (laughs) (laughs) 
Not to say we don't have nice There's places. beautiful places here, yes. but I would I would agree yeah. that probably the most beautiful place on earth is not here. I It's yeah. in Johnson County, Kansas. Isn't it? <laughs> I see it every morning when I open my front door. <laughs> yeah, this, this is this is shady. This is this is too weird. This is the creator and architect behind Mount Rushmore. Yeah, and he's, and he's very talented, and I admire that. But he's, he's wrong. wrong. Yeah, I think he's wrong. All right. Mm-hmm. So, in contrast, the. Power Company presented their star witness, whose name was William Wellett Jr., and he was some kind of congressman or something. And he testified that Haha ha Tonka's value had actually increased <laughs> in value because of the lake. Oh, so they're both full of shit. Yes. And he said that he's a he was a real estate expert mm-hmm. and his testimony went really, really well. People were eating it up. And then James A. Reed gets up there <laughs> and he gets Willett to admit that he had served time in prison oh. on, on some kind of crazy charge uh-huh. and that um, he had offered to testify for the Snyders for a fee. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. Right. So I'm not going to go into any more testimony than that. Like, yeah. You've covered the highlights. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that's all we do on this podcast. Final arguments were fucking crazy. Were they so, 20 hours oh, long? Oh, yeah. A day and a half of final oh, arguments. that's too much. So, Sid Roach was like uh, an attorney who was, he was like co-counsel with mm-hmm. James A. Reed. And he took the beginning of the closing arguments. And he got up there and he got so impassioned that he collapsed in court and died of a heart attack. No. Oh yes. my god. Oh my god, I was laughing. Did you see that? Yes. I was like, I thought you were going to say he was like carried out on a stretcher. Died he in died court. of a heart attack. That is terrible. Yes. And one thing I read said that oh James A. Reed wasn't in court that day because he was like bedridden with an illness and he had to like jump out of bed and come to court and finish the closing argument the following day. Oh my God. Yes. Is that not crazy? That's, that's terrible. Yes. It's nuts. The power company's closing arguments wasn't nearly as exciting. Nobody yeah, everyone died of any lived. heart attacks. Everyone <laughs> lived. And they said that... The amount that Union Electric had originally paid represented fair market value Mm -hmm. and that the Snyders were looking for nothing more than inflated claims on a property in order to just get some profit off of some land that they were stuck with. They, none of these sons wanted this ridiculous mansion. Yeah. They were stuck with it. And now here was a way to make some money. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because I bet it was crazy to maintain that place. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. So the jury deliberated for like that whole night and then part of the following day. And they ended up finding in whose favor? Um, I'm going to say Union Electric or Pacific or whatever. <laughs> Union Electric. <laughs> yeah. They actually found in the Snyder's favor. Really? Yes. But they only awarded $350,000 in damages. That's still a It's still lot. a lot. Yeah. yeah. But, of course, Union Electric appealed it. The appeals went on for 
years. Yeah. And finally, it was um, brought down to like $200,000, which didn't even cover the legal legal costs that the Snyders had racked up during all of this. Oh, man. So during all of this time, uh, Robert Jr. had lived at the mansion at Ha Ha Tonka. After the trial, the Snyder family finances were pretty much depleted. Yeah. They didn't have any money. Robert Snyder Jr. was super sick and he had been living alone. And so he had become like a rare book collector during that time. Uh Um, Do you know this? No. Okay. So it's really interesting. He was super into rare manuscripts, rare books, but specifically about like Missouri history and stuff Uh like that. And so he amassed this crazy rare book collection. But he ended up dying at like, I don't know. He died in 1937, um, okay. so he was fairly young. But before that, he donated all of his books um, to the University of Kansas City, which would later become yeah, UMKC. And they were they were housed in a enclosed stacks in that library. Uh-huh. It's called the Snyder Collection, and like a like you have to it's. There's like a designated librarian just for that section. Like they're super rare, very valuable books. Yeah. Whoa. So the reason he moved out of the mansion is that they ended up having to sell it. Uh And they sold it to a woman who operated it as a as a hotel for years. Seems about right. Yeah. But like in 1940, yeah, 1942, it caught on fire and it was completely destroyed. The ruins of it still stand today uh-huh. because it was much of it was stone. Yeah. And so the stone walls still stand, but that's it. Everything else is oh gone. A librarian who spent years working in the Snyder collection, cataloging the books, says that she believes Robert Snyder Jr. haunts the library. Oh, really? Yeah. She said that he loves his books so much that he never wanted to leave them. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So that's the story of the Snyders that and the Lake so of the Ozarks cool. and Ha Ha Tonka. That is so yeah. So to, cool. you, still today, you can go see the Ha Ha Tonka Castle ruins. Um, uh-huh. It's a park now. Yeah. Um, the state did end up buying the property. <laughs> Ironically, back. Yeah, it is now state, a park. It is now a park. The state brought bought it back, and you can tour the ruins. Part of them have been closed off now because they're worried that like some of the because they still had like the arches and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Available that you could go through, and they're worried about stones falling from the arches now, so they've closed yeah. off part of it. But it's there. Yeah, my family was there like two or three years yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. And I want to pull up pictures now. Yeah, it's super cool looking. Yeah, just an incredible place. That story was so awesome. Isn't that nuts? Oh my god, they have pictures of it on fire. Oh, they do. Yes. Just do an image search. It's crazy. Oh my gosh. It's so cool looking. I've never been to it. We should go. We should. It's Let's really, it. really cool. It's super cool. I just like was I mean, reading. it's hideous now because of the Lake of the Ozarks. And, you know, like <laughs> it was once the most beautiful place yeah, on Earth. Yeah. But uh, now not so much. <laughs> oh, oh, I um, I had done like I had done all this research on this other yeah, crime. Yeah. And I was like, it's too dark. I don't want to talk about it. Uh-huh. And I was like, I want else james a reed's been up to and so that's how i found this case so awesome i love it i love it it's so it's so fascinating to me to like 
for you to like pick a topic that I think I kind of know. And yeah. I didn't know any of that. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. Um, so this one, I was going to do this one last week, uh-huh. but I got deep into the research, not even that deep really. Yeah. And I was like, this is too much. Yeah. It's too gruesome. Can't do it. <laughs> and for whatever reason, like this week I was like, yeah, I'm feeling gruesome. I'm feeling awful. <laughs> do you know this story? Uh, not off of this. No. Okay. Here we go. Okay. Should I be scared? Um, you don't need to be scared. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad one. Okay. Can I handle it? Of course you can. Okay, good. Thanks. <laughs> Geza de Kaplani. These words you're saying. I know. It's a name. Some of the, So the names in this story are mostly Hungarian. Okay. And I looked some of them up. I'm trying real hard okay. here. Okay. I appreciate the effort. Sure, thank you. <laughs> Geza de Kaplani was born in Hungary in 1926. He was raised in a wealthy, aristocratic, and highly dysfunctional family. Mm. At some point in his childhood, his dad beat him so badly that Geza lost sight in one eye. Oh my gosh. One source said that he lost the whole fucking eye. Oh. But... You know, either way, it's bad. Yeah. So there's that. But despite all that, Geza seemed to do okay in life. He was very intelligent. He became a doctor. He graduated from medical school with honors. He became an author. He became a Hungarian freedom fighter. Holy shit. A little while later, in 1957, he immigrated to the United States. But he quickly discovered that the United States wasn't going to recognize his medical degree. Mm -hmm. But that didn't hold him back for too long. He decided to start over in the United States. And this time, he'd study anesthesiology. Mm. Pretty quickly, he got an internship at a Milwaukee hospital. I'm sorry, at Milwaukee Hospital. (laughs) Hey, it's a Milwaukee hospital. (laughs) You know, I stumbled over it as I was researching, like... How arrogant. I'm just Milwaukee <laughs> Hospital. <laughs> so he was there for almost exactly one year. Mm-hmm. And people all seemed to notice that he wasn't a super social guy, mm-hmm. didn't seem to make connections with anybody, no friends. But they figured he's new to the country, new to the city. Maybe he's just uncomfortable. Yeah. After the internship, he went to Harvard University and Yale Medical School. Um, one source said that he studied at Harvard and taught at Yale. That seems unlikely. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. At any rate, the important part is after all of his prestigious schooling was done, he moved out to San Jose, California for a job at San Jose hospital. To San Jose. (laughs) That's beautiful. Thank you. I just wrote it. (laughs) Then, in the summer of 1962, he met Heine Pile. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Heine was also from Hungary, and she was gorgeous. Stunning. She was a model, and at one point she'd been a showgirl at Bimbo's 365 Club, Ooh. which is still around today. Ooh. <laughs> Heine was kind of a big deal. 
Her father had been this internationally known fencing star. Um, I didn't read into him too much, but he was an Olympic yeah. guy. Fencer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and here she was making a name for herself. At Bimbo's. At Bimbo's. Some newspaper articles called her um, the most beautiful woman in San Francisco. Ooh. You know, I think that's something. Are there you... pictures of her? Yes. Don't look her up yet. Okay. Okay. Keep your pants on. But about two years before she met Geza, her father died. So it was just Haina and her mom living in California. This is kind of interesting. According to one source that I read, Haina wasn't super into Geza, but her mom was charmed by him. And her mom was thrilled that he was this aristocrat with this great job. So even though Haina already had a boyfriend whom she loved... Mm -hmm. She decided to basically keep the peace with her mom and marry, mm. or I'm sorry, and start dating Geza. Uh-huh. Oh, spoiler moves, alert, do they get married? Uh, like in five minutes. <laughs> so they met in June, married in August. Whoa. Too fast? It's pretty fast. Too soon? It's pretty soon. <laughs> she was 25 oh. and he was 36. That's not that bad. Oh, it's not great. <laughs> Swim in your own pool is all I'm saying. Swim in your own pool. That's only 11 years. Yeah, I know. I don't think that's that crazy. I can do math like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's not crazy. It's not crazy. But you know how it's I get... It's not 47 and 18. Well, no. But I mean, like, <laughs> come on. That's super crazy. This is more like... You know my thoughts on age gaps. You sometimes, love them? Sometimes they're fine. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like the older person is going after someone who's young and naive and will tolerate more of their bullshit than someone their own age would tolerate. Mm, gotcha. Just, just a theory. Okay. That many people on Reddit agree with. <laughs> <laughs> They'd only been married for a few weeks. Some sources said five weeks, but like, August isn't that long a month. But anyway, okay. So they were having problems. Already? Geza couldn't perform on their honeymoon. If, what do you mean? If you know what I I'm saying. I don't know what you're saying at all, Kristen. Well, I know wanted to see some tap dancing, and he <laughs> couldn't perform. He couldn't do it, okay? And as a man, you want to be able to tap dance on your wedding night. <laughs> on August 27th, Geza was feeling pretty low. So he went to the home of Jane Haju, a comely, svelte blonde of 58. Hmm. And I'm, of course, quoting from a newspaper yes. article from that time. Uh, she was a widow. So I'm just throwing this out there. Okay. Pick it up if you must. <laughs> Jane had actually known Heine for a long time. They went all the way back to Hungary. And she'd known Geza for about a year. He'd helped her... <laughs> He'd helped her get a job at the hospital where they worked. When Geza came to Jane's home that day, he was distraught about his new marriage. He told her, nothing is going all right. I'm very unhappy. She pushes me away. She's cold. She doesn't care for me well. He was miserable, and he wanted advice from his svelte friend. Hmm. Jane claims she knew what was going on with the marriage. She, so she says that she knew 
that Heine was cheating on him. But like that is totally up for debate whether or not that was actually happening. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, she says initially she did not have the courage to tell Geza what was going on. So instead she like hinted at it and she was like, is it possible that Heine is interested in another man? And he was like, no way. No, absolutely not. No. I mean, I couldn't tap dance that night, but I can tap dance any other day. So (laughs) what do you want? I'll tap dance right now. (laughs) (laughs) So there's like all this hemming and hawing. And finally, she's like, dude, okay, I'm going to spell it out. I think she's seeing another guy. Sorry to tell you. That night, Geza had a sleepover at Jane's place. Hmm. What kind of sleepover? Was there tap dancing? Um... I certainly think so, but, you know, (laughs) didn't find any good source on that. Okay. She claims that she saw him as, like, a son Mm. who she wanted to bang. Gross! (laughs) Just kidding. Why did you say that? (laughs) Because I think she's full of shit. I just do. And I have nothing to back that up, just a gut feeling? I'm not the only one who feels that way. Okay. I've got good company. (laughs) The next day, Geza and his good friend Jane went to attorney Scott Anderson. Geza told Scott that he wanted a divorce. And Scott said, sure, okay, I can help with that. You can get an easy, fast divorce and we'll just claim mental cruelty. But Geza was having none of it. He was like, no, I want a divorce on the grounds of adultery. And Scott was like, okay, what evidence do you have? Yeah. And Kesa was like, well, you know, my my good buddy here says that it's happening. Yeah. And Scott was like, yeah, that's, that's not, that's enough. not <laughs> enough at all. <laughs> you need stronger proof than that. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, a divorce like that is going to drag out for a long time. Yeah. Geza was not loving what he was hearing. He wanted a divorce and he wanted it on the grounds of adultery and he wanted it fast. Uh-huh. He was especially fixated on the idea of alimony. He was like, I don't want to pay her anything on principle. Even one penny of alimony would be unfair to me. Oh, gosh. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Geza ended their meeting saying, whatever you do, do it fast, fast, fast. Hmm. What? Why does that... Why is he in such a hurry? You know, I mean, they'd been married for like... Almost, if you can imagine, five weeks by that time. <laughs> and by th- that amount of time can really wear on a person. Uh-huh. uh-huh. But it would have been impossible to get a divorce as quickly as Geza wanted. And really, he didn't want a divorce. He wanted violence. What? So that night, he convinced Heine to sleep with him. And once she was on the bed, he tied her there. And tortured her. <gasps> he cut her open with a butcher knife. And he poured acid oh. all over her. He did this for hours. Oh my gosh. She got third degree corrosive burns <gasps> all over her body. Oh my gosh. Her face, you couldn't even recognize it. And her genitals had been eaten away. <gasps> They were living in an apartment complex, so 
Geza tried to drown out the sounds by playing an opera very oh. loudly the whole time, which I think makes Ooh. it, oh. I mean, not that it makes it better or worse, but I mean, that just seems, yeah. adds a creepy element. So he cranked up the volume and told Heine that if she made a sound, he would kill her. But eventually, obviously, the pain got to be way yeah. too much. And even though she was gagged, her screams got so loud that they overpowered the music and neighbors called the police. Another source said that no one called the police, that, mm-hmm. or no neighbors called the police. It was Geza who called the police. But at any rate, after three hours of torture, mm-hmm. police arrived on the scene. An ambulance came, and Heine's body was so disfigured and so covered in acid that when they went to handle her body, they burned their hands. Oh, my gosh. Yes. <gasps> Geza yeah, was this is really uh uh-huh. this is not your cup of tea. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and yet here we are. <laughs> Do you think we're like freaky Friday right now? Maybe we are. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, what what would I do? You know, it would be terrible if we were freaky Friday. Do you know how many people would get terrible haircuts? Right? How dare you? I mean, you to- don't know how to do it. <laughs> it's not like my hands do it themselves. <laughs> yeah, that'd be really, really well, Suddenly bad. you can only run like a quarter of a mile before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that'd be no big deal. Like, who am I affecting if I just go out for a run and I turn back around? But with you, people would be like, really? Do I have to get a buzz cut? I'm sorry, ma'am, yes, you do. all buzz cuts all day. <laughs> You're not going to love the way you look. <laughs> I guarantee it. Geza wasn't shy about what he'd done. He told the police, I did it to frighten her, to put fear into her for being an adulteress. She's not going to die. I just wanted to take her beauty away. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. That's fucked up. Yeah, no, he's, he's freaking... I don't even know what to say. <laughs> he's like, he's a scary, awful person. Yeah. Heine was still alive when the ambulance arrived, and she continued to live in the hospital. Her mother came and prayed for her, and the whole time Heine said she'd never cheated on Geza. Sergeant Don Edwards came to take Heine's statement, and she told him everything. She said that Geza had bound her hands and feet and gagged her, and then he'd pulled out a suitcase that contained bottles of acid, rubber gloves, tape, gauze, and electrical cord. She told the sergeant, I was out of my mind with pain. The hospital staff was stunned by Heine's injuries. I mean, this is like stuff you don't just see, you know? Yeah. Um, Some of them could barely look at her. It was that bad. Doctors said she had a very low chance of survival, and if she did survive, she'd probably never see again. And she'd obviously have permanent scars all over her face and body. Days passed. She was in agony. And at one point, she regained sight in one eye. But eventually, after 33 days in the hospital, Heine died from her injuries. It was a long, painful, horrible death. One crime reporter said her death was, the most horrendous single murder in American history. Geza was initially charged with attempted murder, 
But once Heine died, he was charged with murder mm-hmm. by torture. I'm sorry, how long was it till she died? 33 days. Oh! Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, this guy was fucked up. Oh. Because you know she just had to be in terrible, terrible pain. Yeah. His lawyer, E.F. DeVilbus, which you know. DeVilbus? See, I'm fine with DeVilbus. I hate it when people go by initials. Do you think it's DeVilbus? D-E-V-I-L-B-I-S-S. What do you say? I don't know. I feel like the emphasis must be wrong, but... Devilbus. <laughs> Divilbus? Divilbus? Divilbus. I don't know. It doesn't know. matter. I have no... Like, I know no more than you. I'm just You're just pretty a lot confident, more confident about it being Divilbus. Boy. <laughs> doesn't that sum us up? <laughs> We have the same amount of knowledge, and but one of us is randomly more confident than the other. So he said, you know, Geza gets this lawyer, and the lawyer says, okay, I think you need to plead guilty, and then we'll work on an insanity defense. But Geza was like, uh, thanks for the advice, but I'm not guilty. I think once the jury has heard my side of the story, they'll totally get it. I don't think so, bud. What? Oh, come on. You you heard that story. I sure did. Yeah. I'm I'm He thought his spouse was cheating, so he poured acid all over her. Uh-huh. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So that's justified is what he's saying. Well, all you need to know for now. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm so excited. Against the advice of his attorney, Geza pled not guilty by reason of insanity. His trial began in January of 1963 in front of a jury of 10 men and two women. Do you think that's going to work in his favor? Well, I mean, you what know do the you outcome. Think? Yeah, what I think, think that would work in his favor. Why? Um, women are not going to be sympathetic to him at all. That is so interesting that you say that. Why? You think it's the women that are going to hold? Well, I mean, you know. So are the women going to hold out? Let's see, shall we? (gasps) But that was exactly what people thought at the time, too, was that um, for him to have a shot in hell, it needed to be a male-heavy jury. Mm -hmm. And that's what he got. Hmm. The prosecution was pumped. This was a slam-dunk case. Hmm. Did he do it? Well, let's see. They had a motive. They had a confession from him. They had a statement from the victim. Doesn't get more clear cut than that. Yeah. The prosecution detailed exactly what Geza had done in all its cruelty. The whole time Geza was sitting there showing no emotion. A few days into the trial, the prosecution showed the jury photos of Haina's horribly burned body. Is it Heine or Heine? Oh, um, well, (laughs) your guess is as good as mine. The prosecutor brought out the first photo. It was a black and white photo taken of Heine's back. And at that point... I guess we've settled on Heine. Yeah, I don't don't really know. Totally fucking with you, Kristen. (laughs) 
at that point, Geza leapt out of his chair. He shouted, no! And then he tried to grab the photo out of the prosecutor's hands. (laughs) Then he shouted, what did you do to her? Who who's he talking to? Oh, fuck if I know. <laughs> <laughs> so the deputy sheriff jumps up and holds Gaza back, and the judge obviously called a recess because that was yeah. crazy. When the court reconvened, the prosecution showed more of the photos. Some of them were in color, and obviously they were much more graphic than the first one. And Gaza sat at the defense table with his head in his arms. A little while later, after court was out of session, I'm not exactly sure the exact circumstances, Mm -hmm. but he summoned his attorney and he was like, hey, man, um, how do you think it's going? You think I got a good shot with this or not good, dude? Not Uh, good. Yeah. Yeah, So DeFilvis was like, "Uh, no, no, I don't think it's going good. Um, You are for sure going to be found guilty. Maybe in the second phase, they'll find that you were insane. But for this phase, 100% without a doubt, guilty. You committed the crime. The jury knows it. Yeah. Geza, who had been totally unemotional up until that point, suddenly felt something deep inside. And you know what it was? What? It was remorse over oh, what he'd done. He was felt, it? Yeah, he felt real bad. Brand, uh-huh. brand, damn it, Brandy! <laughs> Gaza's attorney said that seeing that photo was a turning point for him. He said, I'm a doctor. I loved her. If I did this, and I must have, then I must be guilty. The next day, they went into court. And the defense shocked everyone by changing Geza's plea. This time, he pled guilty by reason of insanity. Mm. So, personally, I do not buy that story at all. Yeah, I don't I either. think that's a great story for an attorney for an attorney to tell a court. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, well, you know, once we saw the photos, it just, oh, it affected my yeah. client so deeply. And all of a sudden... No, he, he was no. like, oh, fuck, I'm not... Getting away with this. Yes. Let me see if I can get away with a, as little punishment as possible. I read something somewhere that, like, he thought maybe that those photos would not be shown in court. Yeah. No. Okay, buddy. And um, when they were shown, it was like, oh, shit. Oh, I shit. can't really yeah. talk my way out of this. Yeah. So they pled guilty by reason of insanity. And in doing so, that just... Ended the first phase guilty of the trial. by reason of insanity, huh? Yeah, I. This seems like some old timey stuff. Yeah, because I feel like that's not the terminology. I, yeah, we would I don't use think that today. would be the terminology. Yeah. In doing so, basically, it's like, was he was he insane? And if so, he might go to an institution. Yeah, or something yeah, like that. rather than yeah. prison. Yeah. There was no need to determine whether Geza did it because he for sure did it. Yeah. Now the jury had to determine whether he was insane. In the prosecution's opening statement, they pointed out that three psychiatrists who'd examined Geza after the attack all thought he was sane. This case was horrifying but simple. Geza was a jealous, violent man who wanted revenge on his wife. Yes. 
But the defense was like, mm, mm, oh, not so fast. Psychiatrist Lindsay Beaton was a key expert witness for the defense. Lindsay said that Geza was a paranoid schizophrenic. He said Geza had a total lack of emotion and that, frankly, he couldn't even understand why he did what he did. Lindsay delved deep into Geza's background. He said that all of his life, Geza has distrusted any woman other than his mother. Geza had this super complicated relationship with his mom where he loved her, but he didn't get love in return, and she'd let a governess raise him. Mm -hmm. So Lindsay's telling all this to the jury and talking all about the abuse that Geza suffered as a child and how he has all these mommy issues, and Geza is sitting there... Don't say it like that. That sounds so gross. Mommy issues? Mommy, ew, gross. Well, sounds disgusting. Gaza's sitting there. He felt the same way you did. <laughs> his face turns bright red. He's gripping the arms of his chair. And finally, he gets up from his chair and he yells, Don't talk about my mother like that. <gasps> he does have... Mommy? No, that's <laughs> gross. That sounds like a. Never mind. What? A category on a disgusting porn site. <laughs> it's like three ways bondage, mommy issues. Brandy, that's a great new business idea you just came up with. <laughs> so the defense attorney's like, "Well, buddy, arms and legs inside the car." Like, yeah. okay, calm down. The defense said that. What this all came down to was a lifelong mental illness stemming from, wait for it, a lifelong period of latent homosexuality. What? Yeah. Yeah. You know how, like, um, being in the closet makes you, like, pour acid on people and cut their boobs open? Yeah. You know how that is. Classic tale. Um, so I thought that this case was interesting for so many reasons. One of them being that like homosexuality was classified as a mental mental illness illness until like the seventies. I think it was like 73. Yeah. And so in this case, they're talking about being gay in the same breath as like paranoid schizophrenic and like, yeah, I mean, I hope to God they weren't trying to put them on the same level, but it was seen as like, well, you know, he was gay, so mm-hmm. what, did you, what did you expect him to do? Right. Yeah, that's terrible. Uh, yeah, it was super weird. Yeah. So what evidence did they have that he was secretly gay? Um, he couldn't tap dance. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Brandy just gave me the biggest, most cartoonish wink. No, are you ready for their evidence? Yeah. Okay, this is... This is how you know if a guy is gay. Okay, okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. He is a ladies man and he's like constantly surrounded by women and he has sex with lots of women. What? <laughs> yeah. What? Does Do it you make have... any sense? Brandy, yes, it does make sense. Yes, it does. Let me explain to you. Okay. Yeah, explain to me how that makes someone gay. <laughs> and by the way, this is obviously... He's some... overcompensating because he wants to have sex with a man so bad ding, that he's ding, having ding. sex with lots of women. So, yeah, here's here's how you know about the secret gayness. It's because 
Um, and this is the words of the psychiatrist. A normal man doesn't have to go out and prove his masculinity oh. again and again. Mm, okay. That was another fun thing about these articles. It is like heterosexual. That word did not pop up. Yeah. It was, the word was normal. normal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lovely. <laughs> so anyway, that's, you know. Mm, that's how okay, you know. That's how you know. That's how you know if someone's gay. So just Man. tuck that away. And I'll just keep that in my yeah file cabinet up there for later use. <laughs> what is it? The eighties? Your file cabinet? <laughs> yeah, you don't picture your brain like with file cabinets in it when you're like searching for a fact. You're like, no, mine is like a high tech computer. Beep 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 beep. beep. <laughs> oh, mine's. I mean, mine's a file cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> Shit ton of file cabinet. I got it up there. But sometimes it's gonna take a minute to find it. Okay, I'm picturing you like a Kathy cartoon right now. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, here's what this all comes down to. When Geza heard the rumor that his wife was cheating on him, it threatened his heterosexual stud charade. He was so rattled that it put him into a Jekyll and Hyde mode, and he snapped. Mm-hmm. Not buying it. What part did you not understand? <laughs> I mean, I heard all of it. I think it's all bullshit. So the prosecution obviously had their own psychiatrist, and they were like, hold on, this is ridiculous. At one point, psychiatrist Christian Johnson testified for the prosecution. He, you know, kind of did his spiel. He said that Geza was legally sane. And as for all those questions about whether he was secretly gay, Christian said no. His exact words were that Geza had a normal sex life. Mm. But on cross-examination, defense attorney E.F. DeVilbis walked up to the witness stand with a photo. He handed it to Christian. He said, I ask you to take a look at this. Who does it look like? And Christian looks at the photo and then kind of looked over at Geza and was like, I see the resemblance. Mm -hmm. So the photo appeared to be of a teenage girl wearing a striped dress her hair kind of up, but it was actually dun dun dun, Geza in a dress. Okay, <laughs> Brandy, you don't seem to grasp what this I'm means. Sorry, what's that supposed to be revealing? <laughs> yes, his mother had taken that photo of him when he was a child, and you know clearly, yeah, when he was playing dress up. Devilbus said. If I told you this was the doctor, would you still put so much faith in his story that he has had a normal sex life? Yes. <laughs> At this point, DeVilbus was on a roll. He was like, don't you think homosexuality could be a factor in what happened here? Don't you think it could lead to paranoid delusions? Don't you think it could make a man fixate on his wife's infidelity? No. And Christian was like, whoa, cool it, buddy. <laughs> Theoretically, I guess it could, but I don't think that's what happened yeah. here. Yeah. I mean, yes, I guess theoretically, sure, but I well, have yeah, seen I mean, no proof that that's the case here. I mean, anything's possible. Because he was in a dress when he was a kid, like... Well, and I'm sorry, but what what boy didn't put on, put a, on a dress? Put on a dress, yeah. And even if... So even if... 
my thing is, I don't think he was really secretly gay, but even if he was, or even if he was trans or whatever, I mean, that doesn't mean you're going to murder no. somebody. <laughs> Not at all. So DeVilbus was like, oh, really? Have you seen a photo of Hannah's dead body? And Christian was like, no. No, thank you. So he goes, here, let me show it to you. So he goes back to the desk, picks up a photo of her dead body. And he goes up to Christian and he's like, tell me, doctor, why'd he do this? Huh? And Christian was like, recoils because yeah. it's a horrible image. And he's like, it I was, don't know. He was like, it was the defendant's reaction to tense emotions. And DeVilbus was like, He said, wives had been unfaithful to husbands before and vice versa. We all have emotions. And this is your explanation? An emotional reaction? Yes. I think that's completely possible. Yeah. Um, Why does it have to be some secret? Yes, if he is already... I. I believe it's possible if he is already dealing with mental illness. Yeah. Dealing with some kind of underlying issues. A normal person, yes, would not. And by normal, I do not mean heterosexual. heterosexual. <laughs> I know. We're going to be careful about normal. No. I do not mean heterosexual. I think sexuality has zero to do with this case at all. Well, wait. Didn't you hear the part about the photo, though? <laughs> yeah, I heard it. The defense kept hammering away at this idea that Geza was a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. In fact, DeVilbus told the jury that there were two people within the defendant. Mm. There was Geza de Kaplani, the nice doctor. And then there was Pierre de la Roche, his evil alter ego. What even name? Well, of course. I mean, this was a different guy <laughs> named so Pierre. Ridiculous. No, Brandy. Would you? Do you even want to hear about Pierre? I would love to hear about Pierre. <laughs> Pierre de la Roche was a seedy French journalist with no moral compass, and it was Pierre who committed the crime. Just okay. Making stuff up now? No, no. <laughs> Pierre was a pretty bad dude. And he'd been plaguing Geza for years. Geza told a psychiatrist who testified for the defense that once, when he was in Boston, a woman walked up to him and said, Pierre, it isn't nice of you to hide from me. But he'd never seen this woman before. <laughs> he'd never seen her before, Brandy. Oh my gosh. So imagine his surprise when he found out that they'd had sex and that she was pregnant with his child. What? Oh, oh Pierre. Oh, Pierre. <laughs> Pierre was up to all kinds of shenanigans all the time. The prosecution was livid over this theory. Yeah. They did everything they could to push against it. One thing they did was point out that Geza had gotten really good grades in psychology and psychiatry classes, trying to show that this insanity insanity defense was a, was a formulated bunch of shit. thing. Yeah, 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 and that he was a smart guy who was yeah. playing yeah. the system. 
He brought forth witnesses who said that Geza was calm on the day of the crime. He had a good appetite. He was smoking. But then the defense got up smoking and... Smoking hot. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> God. Uh, for the record, I have no idea what he looks like. Um, Not that great. <laughs> Some accounts called him handsome, but I'm like, I don't know. Were the standards different in the 60s? <laughs> I'm not into it. The defense got up and they were like, whoa, you said he was smoking on the day of the crime? Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Because only Pierre de la Roche yes! smokes. Yes, yes. <laughs> doesn't smoke. Only Pierre smokes. <laughs> That's so ridiculous. No, case closed, Brandy. No, case not closed. case closed. The prosecution was so frustrated. They were like, Pierre de la Roche does not exist. Yeah, he's not a real person. He's fake. There's just one shitty guy, and his name is Geza de Kaplani. <laughs> and by the way, he has a history of being awful to women. Yeah. They called witnesses to the stand. One of them was a nurse who had worked with him at the hospital. She told the jury that he'd invited her to go skiing with him at Yosemite Ski Resort. So she went, and when they arrived at the resort, she realized that he'd only booked one room. Mm-hmm. She was pissed. That night, he tried to, like, make a move on her, you know, because he was secretly gay. <laughs> and she said, no, I'm not going to have sex with you. So what did that fucker do? He took off. <gasps> he left her there? Mm-hmm. <gasps> Knowing full well she had no way of getting back. Oh, no. He took off as, like, revenge mm-hmm. for her saying no. That's shitty. But the biggest witness for the prosecution was a surprise. Hmm. Earlier in the trial, the prosecution listened to that story about how, you know, some woman had come up to Geza slash Pierre and said, hey, I'm pregnant with your child. And they thought, hmm, wouldn't it be interesting to try to figure out, number one, if she exists, and number two, what her side of the story is. Turns out she was, in fact, real. She was living in Germany. So they flew her out for the trial. Uh They kept her as their final rebuttal witness. Her name was Ruth Kruger. She testified that she'd met... Her brother? I don't know. Why? Freddie. Oh, God. That's a dad joke. You're not allowed to make dad (laughs) jokes when you're like a 30-year-old woman. (laughs) I'm sorry, you're 32. How dare you? She testified that she'd met Geza when she was studying in Cambridge. They'd gone out about five times, and she'd gotten pregnant. Ruth wanted to get married, and Geza was totally on board. There was just one big, really sad problem. He was already married. Which is why he wanted a quick, quick, super fast, quick divorce? Nope, nope, this was before. Oh, okay, uh-huh. but, okay. But he was already married. Um, And that's why he couldn't marry Ruth. You see, his wife, who was 100% real and not made up for any uh, manipulative purposes. made up a wife. Well, yeah, and he loved her very much, but she was in a mental institution. So, you know, he couldn't just, (laughs) it wouldn't be right to divorce. You understand, right? Yes, yes. So he talked Ruth into going to Sweden to have the baby. Why? What happens in Sweden? 
um, she gets the hell out of his life. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He promised her that he'd take out an insurance policy that would financially support her and their unborn child. He was like, love you so much. Goodbye. Then, when Ruth got over to Europe, he changed the beneficiary on the policy to his mom. Oh, neat. He wrote Ruth letters about how sad it was to be him. In one, which the prosecution introduced into evidence, he wrote, I have long loved my wife, and how long she will live, I don't know. His fake wife? Brandy. In the mental hospital? Yes. Yeah, there's a lot of love there for this fake wife. I'm going to start over again. No, I'm sorry. You jerk. Sorry. Reading fucking poetry here. I've long loved my fake wife. (laughs) I have long loved my wife. And how long she will live, I don't know. I only want to follow the voice of my heart in this. I am so alone. So terribly alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because your wife is fake. (laughs) (laughs) That is so lonely when you only have a fake wife. (laughs) It's like you don't feel sorry for him at all. (laughs) The prosecution was like, hey, Ruth, one quick thing. Uh, You knew him as Pierre, correct? And she said, Uh, no. "No." (laughs) They were like, yeah, Pierre de la Rouche. You've never heard that name? No. Nope. <laughs> she was like, I've always known him as Dr. Geza de Caplani. The defense did not know what to do with this witness. They thought they'd done a pretty good job with their insanity defense, but <laughs> Ruth's testimony showed that Geza was super conniving and manipulative. All they could say was that there was a language barrier and that perhaps she didn't understand the prosecution's questions. No. When it came time for closing arguments, the defense went first. They asked that the lights be dimmed, and they showed slide after slide of Heine's dead body. But why did the defense... Yeah, I'm like, what? <laughs> why is the defense showing slides of her dead body? If you had to take a guess, what would you guess? I have no idea! They to show it. that a normal person would not be capable of that, it has to be someone who's mentally ill? So I'm sure that's what they said. Uh-huh. But they did it because they knew the prosecutor wanted to show those pictures. And DeVilbus said, I wanted to pull his fangs a little. Mm. Yeah. Take the sting out of it. Mm. The jury went into deliberation for three days. Ultimately, they were swayed by the testimony about his abusive childhood. So instead of sending him to the gas chamber, they gave him lice- life in prison. <laughs> life. <laughs> Like, probably got lice in prison, too. <laughs> and the jury ordered it, which is weird. <laughs> they normally just... <laughs> sentence him to lice in prison. <laughs> it's so itchy. It's just <laughs> terrible. Both head and pubic. Oh, oh, oh. Too oh, much. I'm sorry. Too much in this classy tale that I have told. So I thought this was interesting. They found him legally sane, but medically insane. Mm. So the legal test was basically, could he tell right from wrong? Yeah. And they felt that he did know right from wrong. But, but having he was said that, Ill. that he was yeah. very sick. Yeah. I another could see that. Yeah. Another article put it this way. They found him mentally ill, but not mm-hmm. insane. Something kind of interesting. So everyone felt the way you did mm-hmm. about the jury makeup that like, 
men would be more lenient. Women would be very unforgiving. Yeah. It went the exact opposite way. Really? So three men on the jury were completely locked in on the death penalty. They were like, death is the only appropriate consequence for this crime. Uh Uh-huh. But the rest of the men and the two women were like, I don't feel good about this. This guy is mentally Mentally unwell. We can't put him to death. Yeah. People were pissed about this verdict. People demanded that the judge overrule the jury, but he didn't. He Mm -hmm. let their verdict stand. After the trial, Geza expressed zero remorse. Mm -hmm. He told the media that he didn't feel any responsibility. He said he was taken over by forces he could not control. He also said some other things that, like, pissed me off, but I was like, okay, I'm just getting a little silly here. (laughs) He kind of shit on America. He was basically like, you guys haven't been through air raids. You haven't been through what I've been through. You're an immature country, and therefore that's why you weren't sympathetic to what I've been through. Uh, It's like, okay. No one gassed you, dude. Like, shut (laughs) up. Geza went to prison. Under the laws at the time, you were eligible for parole after seven years. Seven years? You have life in prison! Plus lice! (laughs) The lice was so cruel and unusual that they were like, let's give him parole. But no one was going to let this guy go. He went up for parole. He was denied. He went up for parole again. He was denied again. But then, in 1974... A three-judge panel found that the trial court made an error during Geza's trial. What error? I think this is interesting, and I kind of agree with them. The judges said that the trial court should have held a hearing to determine whether Geza was competent to stand trial. Yeah. And they should have held a hearing to determine whether he was competent to plead guilty. They said, look, either release him or give him a new trial. The following year, the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals reviewed the the three-judge panel's decision, and they said, yeah, he needs a new trial. That was a controversial decision, because it had been such a horrifying crime. And it wasn't unanimous. One of the judges said, due process requires a fair trial, not a perfect trial. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. Yeah, I I agree with that, too. Yeah. But while all this was going on, something batshit crazy happened. Geza was coming up for parole again, and he was able to rally support from the San Francisco Catholic Church. What? Yeah. So the Catholic Church really stood by him throughout the trial. I I didn't write this part down, but I believe the priest who married him and Heine testified at trial... And said that Geza seemed like the more moral one of the two. Okay. Uh, Right? Excellent. Archbishop Joseph McGuckin visited the chairman of the state parole board. He said, look, I have a proposal for you. Geza is a talented man. Let him give his life to the church. Let him become a medical missionary. Geza was, of course, all over this. He was like, yes, I would love to help. Mm -hmm. I would be thrilled to help others and get the hell out of prison. So on November 13th, 1975, Geza was given a secret parole. 
he was released from prison and no one told the prosecutors, no one told the police, no one told the press, no one told the public, no one told Haina's family. What? They sent him off on a flight to Taiwan and didn't tell anyone. Oh my gosh. That's a real thing? That's a real thing. Holy crap. When news eventually got out, people were outraged. Raymond Prockner was chairman of the parole board. He was the one who helped get Geza out of prison. And I saw one article that alleged that when this case went up for parole, he took out the photos of her body, which the district attorney had said needed to stay yeah. with that file yeah. anytime he came up for parole. But they say this guy took those photos out, which, you know, yeah, if you don't see the horror of yeah. it, although even a written description. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I haven't seen the photos and, and you're pretty horrifying. horrifying. Yeah. I think also being super sexist helps, but you know, whatever. Probably. What do I know? <laughs> so people were going crazy over this guy, this Raymond character. They were like, get him out. The following year, Raymond resigns for personal reasons. Mm. Geza worked in Taiwan in Taiwan for four years. But he was pretty miffed that San Jose officials kept calling him and checking up on him. So in 1978, he wrote them a letter. He said he'd sue them for $1 million if they didn't stop the persecution and harassment of his parole checks. That's part of being on parole. He was a big, important doctor in Taiwan. Oh, my gosh. Then, the next year, he disappeared. Where'd he go? He resurfaced a couple of times. At one point, he was fired from his job at a hospital in Munich after a magazine wrote an article about the crime. But according to the Daily News, Interpol was good about letting California know where he was. California officials could have gone after him, but for whatever reason, they just didn't. They didn't. Okay, other articles, none of the articles I saw mentioned this. Like the, some of them talked about uh, paperwork, things got lost, blah, blah, blah. But I think a huge part of it is that he was up for a new trial. Mm -hmm. And maybe it was like the hassle of going, getting him, mm -hmm. and then doing a new trial. Uh -huh. No one mentions that. Yeah. Though. In 2002, a newspaper reporter tracked him down in Germany. He was living a nice, quiet life with his new wife. He told the reporter, I have done one mistake in my life. I paid enough for it. Wow. By that point, he'd been a naturalized German citizen for two years and therefore could not be extradited. Wow. Yeah. That's nuts. That's the story of the acid doctor. Is he dead now? Um, okay, that's the crazy thing. Uh, you might think, I mean, he'd be in his 90s. And yeah. I, I can tell just from like some basic web sleuthing that people are kind of like still interested in this. Yeah. And someone said that as recently as 2015, he's not dead. Oh my gosh. Um, that's nuts. I'd never heard of that before. Uh, it's It's one of those that like... It was frustrating. I want someone to go in and like do a big deep dive yeah. into it because I was just like trying to piece stuff together from newspapers.com. So I'm sure there's a ton of stuff I missed. But 
I mean, what an infuriating, crazy case. Yeah. Oh, so good. And gruesome. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, I didn't love that part. Yeah. Well, but when when we're Freaky Fridaying it, (laughs) there are no rules. That's right. What do you got over there? Talk about this week. I have a few notes. Oh boy. Um, I want to talk about. Is it civets? Is that what those things civets, are called? Civets, yes. From our last episode. Holy shit, did you <laughs> see the thing on Twitter? Yes. Oh, no. So um, I wrote it down, actually. Okay, so good. First, talk about civets a little. Explain. Okay, civets were um, uh, where SARS got transferred from these crazy bats to people. They're kind of a cross between a cat and an otter. Um, I don't know what they're classified as. I don't think they're a feline. I don't know that for sure. Um, but they're um, present in Asia and Africa. And somehow they took the SARS disease from bats to humans in Hong Kong in 2003. So you said somehow they did it. Kristen and in thinks the it's because someone <laughs> fucked, a, fucked a civet. Fucked that cat thing. <laughs> So yeah, in the episode, I was like, well, obviously someone fucked one of those cat things. And then Andrew on Twitter um, pointed out that the more obvious answer is that a cat bit someone. I, um, I even think the answer is more obvious than that now that that other person sent us that message about civets. Oh, I didn't see that. About the, the coffee beans. Oh, okay. I did write that one down. Okay, yeah. so Jesse on Twitter said, just a fun fact about civets, since they were mentioned in the latest episode. People use coffee beans from their excrements for brewing coffee since apparently the enzymes in their digestive system has a certain effect on the beans and makes for a better coffee. See, I think that makes sense that the civets were eating like the bat droppings Mm -hmm. and then people took the coffee beans out of the civet droppings and then boom, you've got SARS. And nobody fucked one of those cat things, hopefully. I just wanted to bring it up because it was such, like, every now and then you have a moment where you're like, am I a freak? Because Andrew said the thing about maybe maybe the civets bit someone. And I was like, oh, my God, that legit never occurred to me. When you brought that up, my mind immediately went to someone fucked one of those cats. Uh, so anyway, I'm sorry, everyone. For sorry for insinuating that people were fucking cats. <laughs> Maybe they were, but they, Maybe you they know. were, but there's other options. Yeah. Also, I'd like to mention that um, I think it was in the last episode I brought up my business idea where, or maybe it was two episodes ago, where I said that I want to set up a camera in your salon so mm-hmm. we could just have like video of yeah. haircuts happening. I thought it would be really relaxing. I thought people would be into it. No. Um, no, no, no one's into it. No one's into it. Everybody thinks that uh, creepers are going to come out of the woodwork, and yeah. I agree. One person on Reddit said, I think that sounds like an invitation for creepy balloon guy to come back. <laughs> and boy, are they right. Yeah. So um, I will stop harassing you about my business idea. Thank you. Literally everyone says it's Nobody awful. Nobody thinks it's great. What do you have going on? Um, today, uh huh, as of recording time, okay, the act premieres on Hulu, yeah, which is a show based on the Gypsy and Dee Dee Blanchard case. Very excited. Kristen covered so well on this podcast. Beautifully. Yes. Amazingly. Yeah. The best. (laughs) 
the previews for it look so good. I really? can't wait to watch it. Yeah. Okay. I'm yeah. I'm pumped to watch it too. Yeah, definitely. Um Oh my god, that was my stomach. <laughs> Are you hungry? Is it yeah, time I'm, for lunch? It's time for lunch. We better wrap this thing up then. You gotta get All right, finished up you guys here. know what to do. Find us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube. We're on Reddit. Uh, head on over to iTunes. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. We're headed towards 200. That's our next goal. Um, please help us get there. And then join us next week. When we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast adjourned. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from the book Doctors Who Kill, Profiles of Lethal Medics by Carol Ann Davis, The Oakland Tribune, Newspapers.com, and Wikipedia. And I got my info from the Christian County Headliner, a book by J. Michael Cronin with a ridiculously long title, <laughs> the Bolivar Herald Free Press, and LakeHistory.com. For a full list of our sources, visit LGTCPodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. <laughs>